This is The Mark, a podcast about furniture, brought to you by Mark Sussex. Episode 2. The Shipbuilder's Sketchbooks. My name is Chloe and I'll be your host as we journey into the world of furniture design, asking the makers and doers of this industry which objects most left a mark on them. My second interviewee is Ben Fowler, an award-winning designer and manufacturer. Ben is the originator of Marks & Spencer's best-selling Sonoma range. Since founding his first tiny workshop in 1986, Ben has grown what is now a thriving manufacturing hub at Scott Workshops, in New Haven. The factory is home to numerous independent joinery businesses and his own team at Mark Furniture, Mark Sussex and Fowler & Co. The Fowler & Co portfolio holds many achievements, from the auditorium seating and interiors for Das Festspielhaus Nauschwanstein in Füssen, Germany, to the toilet doors of the Royal Barge Gloriana. Ben is usually found designing ranges for major high street retailers including Heels and John Lewis, or bespoke pieces for private homes and corporate clients. He and his team are frequently called on to design and realise complex architectural details such as staircases. They can do almost anything with wood. Great, so I think we're rolling finally. (laughs) Okay, are we rolling, Bob? Yeah, so welcome to the Mark podcast, Ben. (laughs) you very much that's the the usual zoom hell of getting going zoom hell of getting going is over i um, think it's all the computer companies want all of us to feel completely useless so i don't know a single person who says oh yeah i'm really good at zoom everyone says no it's really hard so is it all of us that have got a problem or is actually more difficult than it looks i think everyone's got a problem we've got a problem <laughs> they've got a problem <laughs> It's a problem. It's well, a but let's solve the problem. <laughs> let's solve the problem by doing what we came here to do. Yeah, which, that's a good plan. Which is to ask you a few things. And um, I figured that I should probably ask you why you set up Mark Sussex in the first place, because you being one of the founders, that's kind of an interesting thing to ask you. Well, actually, it started about, oh God, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I've known Simon such a long time. It's a long time. We've been talking about some of the frustrations of, of working for um, retail when you design it. All designers want to see their furniture or their designs. There are other, other kinds of designers also <laughs> apply, but... Designers want to see people using their products. So it's very nice to design things that end up in shops because then they're bought by people. And there's nothing more amazing than walking in someone's house and seeing a bit of furniture design in their sitting room. It's a nice feeling. And we want people to have nice stuff that we've designed. And it's it's, it's just part of the pleasure, I, I, I guess. Writers want their books to be read because they want their ideas listen to and that's it's the same sort of thing really although much easier than writing and um 
one of the problems with working for retail is that uh, uh, designing things generally is that you have to make thousands and thousands of compromises to make the thing fit the marketing model of the retailer or the ideas of the buyer that you're dealing with and often those ideas are great and it's and it's fantastic to do that and it's it's part of the job of being a designer but there's a little bit in every designer that wants to be wants to be the artist to do something of their own uninfluenced by other people just to see whether or not it's it has legs as it were if it's a chair it bloody well needs them so the idea behind mark was years ago me and simon talking about these frustrations saying wouldn't it be nice just to be able to design whatever we like and see if people will buy it and make it and just see if we can get people interested in it and we'll learn whether our ideas float or not on our own resources without having other intermediaries getting in the way often of a bit of an idea that we think oh god if only you'd done that thing if only that idea had been incorporated it would have been so much better but we'll never know that and so it was partly this selfish thing it's, it's a bit like being a self-publisher i suppose but the the idea was just how could we do things and that was the, the the very beginning of it and it got to the point where we now had a lot of designs that we'd worked on that had often just been rejected by people maybe a lot of work had been done to develop them into production and then at the last minute because of a recession or a banking crash or because somebody changed their job and the person that really liked her, whose pet project it was left to go to another country the thing fell apart and you're left with this product that you'd spent ages working on and had some real guts to it but had nowhere to go and so we have all this stuff because we're old men we had all this stuff and we thought well wouldn't it be nice to just see if we could find a way of marketing it and then we discovered how very hard marketing is <laughs> but we've set up mark as a means of production is there something that's happened in the last two to five years that has created a good opportunity for you to do this is there something that's changed in terms of consumer attitudes to what they would like to buy for their home or a, a different trend in in people's buying behavior that you think has created a, a space for you to do this i think that the, the main thing for me anyway was the increasing awareness of environment and increasing awareness of how in, how impoverished we are as consumers me included by always seeking the lowest price for things and so i was sort of motivated by the idea that that kind of economics is bad for the environment and also it's bad for quality if you're always chasing the lowest price for something you inevitably end up with a lower quality and actually i felt and i know simon felt it too and john and jake and all the people we're working together with and indeed a lot of the retailers understand that what we should really be giving people are objects and things that they can use and that give them pleasure and continue to for years and years and years and i always use this as an example my david mellow cutlery is british made cutlery little factory of their own beautifully designed lovely balance to it lovely knives and forks i know you've used them and 
these this cutlery is eye-wateringly expensive. I, I don't know what a knife and fork costs. Well, a knife for a fork's twenty-five quid or something. I don't know. And so to build up a canteen of the cutlery costs a lot of money. And I did it over a period of years and years. And this cutlery I use every day, sometimes three times a day if I, at the weekend when we're eating food. So that knife and fork may have cost me fifty quid. 30 years ago but it's still working 20 years ago it's still working it's still beautiful it's still finely balanced it's still a pleasure to hold that I don't get from something that's been cheaply made plus I know it's been made by somebody who loves their work not by someone in a factory somewhere who's being screwed for every last bit of production and that should be applied to furniture if anything because furniture is is, is almost the ultimate craft if you talk to people about woodwork and making things or craft people always think of furniture often chairs because that's it's just so so obviously everybody gets it and so the idea that we sell people cheap badly made stuff often made by people who are struggling to survive on what they're paid that's trounced around the planet in big ships first the timber from america to china then the products from china to europe what are we doing? It's a crazy thing to do. An Oakland furniture world pushing cheap, cheap, nasty things as being quality. It's a lie. And it's not good quality. And all it does is deliver you a house full of stuff that looks like something you hope it is. But it, it, it's not there. And you're far better off spending the same amount of money on a much smaller amount of stuff that fills your soul. That's a really important point, I think. You you made there about how the furniture that we buy now even from I, I don't want to name any names but the the person who buys the furniture probably isn't aware of the number of miles that that item has traveled before it's reached their home but that is something that's being done completely differently by mark so you know exactly where your your materials are coming from can you tell me a bit about the um the sourcing the products from mark were, are entirely going to be manufactured if they're if they're bulk products if they're made in in quantity and we do deliver furniture that we've designed to to john lewis and marks and spencers and these these this furniture is beautifully made by a factory that we know well that we've visited and we know the people who work there and they're all fantastically skilled and they're all in love with what they're doing and they all produce uh, all the furniture produced by that factory that one factory is of the highest quality to the extent that basically that factory is fought over by retailers like Urkel, John Lewis, Heels, Marks and Spencer all all the best furniture uh, retailers would like to use that company because the work is so good and the 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 not only the quality but the environmental standards is so good because basically they're, they're a good company. The problem with it is that buying furniture from that company is more expensive than buying it from one in, in China. If you buy furniture from a factory in China, that's going to be a lot cheaper. But how can it possibly be cheaper when it's carted halfway around the world? Something has to give. And I think what happens is lots of things take a hit. Quality takes a hit. Uh, the quality of material takes a hit. So it's not as good a material. 
and, and the design quality takes a hit because things have to be made in ways that aren't necessarily as good as, as, as the ways we can make them when we use a, a, a proper manufacturer. So that's part of Mark's furniture. And the other part, the Mark Sussex side, is that we want to manufacture furniture in our own factory in Sussex. And this is really, really important because environmentally, the miles furniture travels, even if it's just from a factory in, 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 on the European continent, is <laughs> still a lot of miles. The, the timber often is taken from America and has to come all the way to Europe to be turned into furniture. So there's, there's still a lot of miles. I, we wanted to start making furniture in our own factory. And of course, Brexit has affected, affected this as well, because <clears throat> once we're out of Europe, it's going to become even more important to start using our own resources, especially if we fail to get a good result in terms of a trade um, deal with Europe. So in a way, that's a catastrophe. And the way to deal with those catastrophes is to look at how we can better do things at home. And I've always thought it was worth, like Urkel, make furniture in their factory in Princes Risborough. Why shouldn't we make furniture in our factory in New Haven, albeit on a smaller level? And I've always thought Yerkel was a fantastic example of, of well-made, beautiful, high-quality furniture. And so we're going to try and do a mini Yerkel. <laughs> and you do have a kind of familial connection to Yerkel as well. Would you like to share? <laughs> I know the story. Yeah, my old man worked as a designer for Yerkel in the, the late 50s and early 60s. And the family story is that the, the, the Lucien Ercolani um, sent the Bentley to Amersham Hospital to pick up my mum and me when I was newborn, which is a nice story. And I, I don't know if it's true, but I hope it is. And I, that's what I was told by my mum anyway. <laughs> that's destiny. <laughs> that's destiny. And I, I now have designed a range for Ercole, so it's all nice and rounded off. <laughs> yeah, full circle. Lovely. I will use that as a chance to get to the main question of the of the podcast, which is the the piece of furniture that left that most left a mark on you. Can you think? Or it might not have been furniture. It might be another product. But can you share a a piece that tells a story in terms of how your approach to design has has developed over the years? Yeah, well, when I was at college, I met a visiting lecturer called David Colwell. And David Colwell was a product designer, and he designed some uh, quite a famous steel and plastic chair that in, in, in the 70s that was quite a well-known chair. He was industrial designer, what we'd call industrial designer, you know, designer for really large, huge, high-scale production. And uh, he, was, he was a really lovely, soft-spoken, thoughtful, intelligent designer. And uh, he moved out to Wales and he took, and we went for a visit to his small workshop in Wales that he'd bought in North Wales, an old schoolhouse that he had converted. And in that schoolhouse, he was producing beautiful bentwood furniture, steam bent ash, chairs mainly, but also tables and table frames, his tabletops weren't bent and uh, he had done something very different with steam bending and it opened my eyes because he he'd worked with the whole business of moving to Wales in a three-dimensional way because he he was a designer and 
he found that the local materials to hand in North Wales were ash. He could get a lot of ash easily. He couldn't find it seasoned. Now, if it's not been seasoned, the only thing you can really do with timber is make fences of it, burn it, <laughs> or steam bend it and turn it. Hence bodging. So Urkel make bentwood furniture because they used to use the green beech and elm and ash from the woodland in Buckinghamshire and they they made furniture in the same way that the bodgers in the woods would make Windsor chairs and that's the idea behind Urkel. It became a mass producer of Windsor chairs, the first company to do it. But David didn't do that. David thought right I'm going to design modern products using steam bent ash because that's the material I have available. So very low tree miles in that. He got his timber pretty much for nothing because no one saw any value in ash. It was firewood and fencing, really. Well, not even fencing, it rots. So <clears throat> this timber was worth little or nothing to the locals. He got it cheaply. So and he taught himself steam bending and he started to produce modern, really beautiful clever steam bent furniture he wasn't replicate he wasn't doing windsor chairs he never has and the chair i'm sitting on now is a, is a david colwell x-frame folding chair a director's type chair made entirely out of steam bent and turned ash and leather seat and <clears throat> it encapsulates what you need to do if you want to work sustainably it doesn't mean to say you have to do old-fashioned stuff it doesn't mean to say you have to make one at a time he was very skilled at pr producing large batches very efficiently so he applied all the rules of industrial design to his little converted schoolhouse in north wales steam bending chairs and table frames and i think his work is extraordinarily beautiful and he's made uh, lovely chairs. Designers like chairs because chairs are fun. You can do anything. You can sit on anything. <laughs> so they're sculptural. You can have fun with chairs. But he's a great all-round designer and a fantastic woodworker, but not a woodworker first. He, 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 he came to woodwork and learned it through the materials he was using and became hugely skilled at it. And he's still going, and I admire his products and his, his attack all, all round. His attack, that's a good word, because I think the, the matter of craft is very important to you and, and how the, the process of making something informs how it should come together. Is that? Yeah, is that my furniture, we want very much to, to work together to ensure that the way things are made are central to the way they're designed. Too much design is surface these days. Too much of it is styling. Things should be informed by the production. So like David Colwell, he, he found that his, his best, best shot really was steam bending ash. Then he designed beautiful things using this process. He didn't try and make them look as though they were made out of steel or look as though they weren't steam bent. He just made, neither did he make, neither did he look back and say, okay, I'm going to copy Windsor chairs, he did new things with this old process. And yeah, that's what design should be about. Should, should be taking its inspiration from the way things are made, what you need to do with things, form following function in every respect, rather than taking its inspiration from what's latest and most fashionable, because that doesn't endure. And when it, I mean, 
steam bending, it sounds like something that would be quite easy. But I imagine that quite a lot of force needs to be exerted. In well, no, it is. It's when, you steam, when you steam green timber, it goes like literally like spaghetti. It's, it's really fantastic. But you do need to be very skillful about the way you make the jigs and, and, and the formers to, to, to make your to make your steam bending and again Dave was very very clever with that making three-dimensional one but yeah it's, it's both incredibly easy and really really complicated yeah have you got a piece that you would save from your studio or your home if if you could take one thing away with you well this is really hard this is the desert island discs bit isn't it this is really really tricky because mm. obviously I, I'd, I'd get on my molten bike and scram as fast as I could away from the flames thus keeping the bottom <laughs> bike but I think that's too easy and I, I I I would take I would gather one or as many as I could of my granddad's sketchbooks because they contain more than an object could ever contain a sketchbook's like a diary and what they contain was his understanding he was a shipwright of boat building and his his he was self-taught draftsman so the drawings were very much from his heart and he really understood the things he drew he drew ships and the, the villages uh, that were around Hartlepool where he lived and the and those books represented a wealth of knowledge of, of a time before <laughs> a time before the wars both both wars and I I think I would try to get one of those in my pocket because they, they they represent an awful lot and yeah so that that's what I would try to run upstairs and get. <laughs> Have you used any of his drawings to um, to inspire shapes within your own work? I think everything about his work has affected me obviously as a designer my dad my dad's influence was was important because he talked about design. I never, of course, met uh, John Fowler because he he died before I was born. But his sketchbooks and their their intricate, careful uh, realization of boats and shipbuilding scenes have always meant a lot. And I've always been obsessed with boats, as you know, Chloe, since I was a child. And I have built maybe four or five, and I have seven or eight boats on the go at the moment and it's a nutty obsession but I believe that there is a connection between his his being a boat builder and my being in love with it and those books are are a very real visceral connection between my boat building life and pastime as a hobby and feeling like I sort of know him. So yeah, yeah. informed that. That's lovely, it's really beautiful that it might be a kind of conversation between the generations. That's what literature and diaries are too, isn't it? A conversation yeah. between the generation. Sketchbooks do the same job. It's true. I did want to ask you, a bit about COVID-19 and whether or not that has impacted your idea for how to bring Mark Sussex into being this year? Has it affected your business? Well that actually was really 
a very critical part about Mark Sussex because the separateness of Mark Sussex is it all but in entirely concerned with manufacturing in our own workshop so Mark Furniture generally is all the stuff but Mark Sussex will be our own homemade Sussex made products and yeah Covid's very much done that because it showed us again that things can go wrong in the wider world that are so far beyond your control maybe one of the right things to do both environmentally and economically is to try and live more on your own resources than those of the wider world because it's hard to be reliant on a company overseas when when the planes have stopped flying the ships have stopped docking and it all goes to hell in a handcart so it made me and John particularly realise even more this amazing resource we have in New Haven of our beautiful, beautiful factory. And there are lots of young people out there who want work and there are lots of people. And so we've got a new apprentice who's been with us 18 months now. So we got him before COVID, but Tom's great. And these, these young people want to make things. And so keeping keeping going making things is, is important and we felt that maybe that was another way of helping ensure that the workshop keeps going and that we can make things sustainably and yeah it remains to be seen what happens in the in the economic environment after covid but but yeah it makes sense to make things here is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered already that is really important to get over in terms of what you're excited I think about? The, I think the overall thing is that I think that we all got to just find ways of working in more sustainable ways. And it's a thing that keeps me worried all the time. I'm anxious about and I look around at all the things that are being done from the very, very mainstream like building wind farms and, and and solar panels on roofs which is great right through to the other extreme which is extinction rebellion doing the things that they're doing to try and make people more aware of Greta Thunberg and I realize that it's down to all of us to do what we can it's no use me just sort of throwing everything away and trying to live on a small holding that I know nothing about at the age of 60 but what I can maybe do is to try and use what little understanding I have of design to do a little bit to try and try and make the market that I live in work in a more sustainable way it's not enough but yeah that that's that's the that's the thing that we've got to keep our eyes on and small actions can add up to a huge difference can't they I hope hopefully <laughs> so. so I think I think we've We've come to the end of this episode of the Mark podcast. Well, it's thank you very great. much. <laughs> thank you for <laughs> interviewing me. It's great. Yeah. So you can edit that, can you? Yes, I can edit that. Too long. Sorry? Because I witted on too long. No, you didn't witter on too long at all. I think it felt like a the Mark Podcast is hosted by Chloe King and produced by Slow Studio, with thanks to Tom Weaver for his bespoke intro track recorded on site at Scott Workshops in New Haven.
Thank you for listening.